0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Rachel and Eric. Prison abolitionism is a strand of radical anti-authoritarian politics that dreams of a world without prisons and organizes to make it so. Exactly what that world might look like and what change might be required to reach it are open questions. Certainly it would require transformative social change that would reverberate far beyond prisons themselves. Though it has a longer history in this country than many realize, it is still a relatively small element of the itself small radical left in Canada. But it is perhaps not surprising that one city that has a group that focuses its work on abolishing prisons is none other than Kingston, Ontario. Kingston is a city of about 120,000 people on the north shore of Lake Ontario, midway between Toronto and Montreal. Despite its quite modest population, Kingston has the dubious distinction of having the largest concentration of federal correctional facilities of any city in Canada. The group End the Prison Industrial Complex, or EPIC, began in 2010. Radicals in Kingston had already been discussing for a while the possibility of starting a group focused on prisons. A couple of other things happened that year that led them to finally make it happen. On the one hand, at the national level, you had radicals organizing against the Olympics in Vancouver and against the G20 Summit in Toronto who were facing intense repression from police, including, for some, the threat of jail time. On the other hand, at the local level, there was opposition developing in Kingston, both among prisoners themselves and among a politically diverse cross-section of residents, to the Harper government's plans to close the two farms used as work sites for prisoners and associated with prisons in the city. It seemed like the right time for radicals in Kingston to come together around prison issues and to add a specifically prison abolitionist perspective to that broader campaign. Over the years, Epic's work has evolved. After the defeat of the campaign to save the prison farms, they mobilized for several years, this time mostly on their own rather than in coalition, to oppose various prison expansion projects in Kingston. And since that campaign has receded, they've focused more attention on building relationships with individual inmates and inmate committees, and have done things like publish a regular newsletter that is mostly by and for prisoners, as well as supporting, however they can, acts of resistance by prisoners on the inside, all the while working hard to articulate a prison abolitionist perspective. I speak with Rachel and Eric about prison abolitionist politics, about the very particular political context of Kingston, and about EPIC's work in the service of a world without prisons or any other institutions of domination and control. We spoke by Skype to phone from Kingston.
1: My name is Eric. I'm a member of End the Prison Industrial Complex, which is an anarchist prison abolitionist collective based in Kingston, Ontario, Canada's prison capital.
2: And my name is Rachel, and I'm also involved with End the Prison Industrial Complex, or EPIC.
1: I grew up in Toronto and moved to Kingston to go to school, and through a combination of punk rock and student politics, became politically active early on when I was living in Kingston, and over the years became involved with, I guess, radical politics, and eventually a more explicitly anarchist politics, and leading up to the anti-Olympics organizing that was happening, as well as the G20 organizing in 2010. A lot of people in our networks were targeted by the police and some people, especially who were involved with organizing around the G20, spent short periods of time in jail. So they went for like between a month and up to about two years. So I think in anarchist communities in Ontario, especially, there was a renewed energy and focus on the prison industrial complex and a desire to understand and map out and navigate That both from a support perspective in terms of supporting people who we knew who were in jail, as well as a broader political imperative as anarchists as part of a strategy of resistance against the state. And in Kingston, we'd already been talking about that for some time because there's so many prisons in Kingston and because there's such a large prisoner population and people who are on parole living in the Kingston area. And it started in the context of a popular campaign against the closure of the prison farms program, actually.
2: I guess I've been an anarchist since my teens. I grew up in rural Nova Scotia and moved to Montreal for university at 18, where I got really involved in various anarchist activities. And then in 2010, I was moving to Kingston, I believe, for one year to do a graduate program that I thought I was interested in at the time. And I've always believed in doing work that's contextual, and I think all anarchists do that. And I can do what makes sense ideally for the specific context they're in. So while in Montreal I was not doing anti-prison work, in Kingston I sought that out and first got involved with Epic around a campaign to fight a massive prison expansion going on. So different kinds of actions were happening against new units that were being built at existing penitentiaries here in town and I joined the group around that. Prison (laughs) district complex is a literal complex made up of the actual prison system itself, which is a state-run institution and all of the capitalist institutions around it that are a part of that. And I think that it's important to recognize that prisons are one thing, but that the system of control and domination that they're part of is much more far-reaching than the prison is itself. So I like to look at anti-prison work as anarchist work more than prison abolitionist work for myself, at least. And consider all the institutions around us that are prison-like or prisons, maybe, that aren't commonly called prisons as well. So that's important for me. And I think that various corporate and industrial powers that feed into prisons or fund prisons or do whatever it takes to keep us from going are a part of that. But actually, I don't believe that that's an on its own that needs to be fought, like, specifically and separately from other state institutions, like, you know, a mental hospital or
1: a school or... Any other institution of power that I see as beautifully connected to prisons? I think more people are familiar with the term military-industrial complex, as it was popularized by people who are doing anti-war organizing in the United States. and pointing to all the private contractors and their connections to government and all the money that we're making off of bloodshed from the 60s on in the United States. So I think people deployed the term prison industrial complex to bring a kind of familiar critique of the ways in which the government and the private sector conspire to make money off of the misery of others and apply that lens to the prison system. It's been used a lot in the United States by groups that are more specifically maybe solely focused on the prison system and its impacts in society and in a context where you have actual private prisons that are operating in the United States. Mm -hmm. I think in Canada, there's certainly a ton of private involvement in the prisons and it's been something that we highlight and oppose, but I do believe it's more driven by like a government-driven system of control more than it's a system of profit creation. But I would still call that the prison industrial complex because there's an entire industry Like if you look at Kingston, you have a large population of people who are dependent on the prisons for their livelihoods. So you have guards, but you also have people who work in and out of the prisons. Every major contractor has a significant amount of their work doing renovations and construction work at the prison. You have social services agencies that are deployed to manage the criminalized populations that come in and out of prison. So I think we use that term much more expansively than sometimes it's used We're using it to describe the way in which prison has infiltrated all aspects of society and the kind of logic of control and domination that drives that. Angela Davis has been a major theorist of prison abolition and has taken the word abolitionist from the history of the abolitionist movement against slavery in the United States. And basically is pointing to the prison system as a continuation of the same slave system that existed in the United States historically. And that it was never really abolished. It was reconfigured. So I think that term has been adopted very deliberately to draw those parallels and to create a historical continuity there. What it actually means practically, I think, is a really tough question. It's always the first question that we have, right, from people is, well, without prisons, how are you going to deal with, you know, murder, rape, the most extreme, most violent kind of crimes? There's a broad field of thought around, first of all, pointing out that most people are in prison for nonviolent drug offenses, which is something that is more easily explainable as there's no need for that to be criminalized in the first place, and doing the same kind of thing around mental health issues. But then when we get into, well, yes, of course, people are going to continue to hurt each other and there's going to be violence and harm no matter what kind of society we build, whether there's wealth inequality or whether there's proper support for mental health and proper support for drug addiction, you're still going to have these kinds of issues. Then we start looking at societies that have existed historically or continue to exist in various forms that didn't rely on prisons to resolve conflicts and start talking about how do we resolve our conflicts with each other and resolve issues of violence outside of the police and court system. And that usually looks like something like accountability processes, which have had really mixed results when they've been applied in activist communities. And I think anybody who's experienced them can speak to that where we talk about transformative justice, restorative justice. There's a whole body of theory about like without prisons, how do we resolve conflict without locking somebody up in a cage as punishment for something that's been done that we believe is wrong? How do we change that behavior in a way that it doesn't continue repeating itself and producing itself in ever greater ways? But I think the most important thing to point out is that prisons aren't resolving these conflicts either. Prisons are exacerbating existing tensions in society and creating drug problems and creating mental health issues and justifying their own existence in ever-expanding ways.
2: Kingston has seven prisons on several different sites. And as soon as you spend any time in the town, you can see in a way that the prisons in the town are constantly interacting. There's these big buildings that exist that are the literal prisons that you have to walk or drive by regularly. But then also, you know, people are going in and out of prison from Kingston. There's tens and tens of ex-prisoners, people on parole and people on probation. There's tens and tens of prison staff. It's like a major employer in the city. Pretty much anyone you meet in this town who has lived here for any amount of time either knows someone or has lived someone who either has worked for CSC or has done time in some way. And I think that's quite unique prison is really quite intensely
1: woven into the fabric of the town. There's a joke here that when a crime's committed, the police don't actually investigate. They just go around to every single person on parole and harass them until they find somebody to blame. You have pockets of people who are extremely criminalized. A lot of that poverty and criminalization is multi-generational and confined in specific neighborhoods. I think people sometimes come here to go to school, or they come here as a tourist or something, and they don't ever see that side of Kingston but it's actually very foundational to the way the city operates.
0: Tell me more about the founding of End the Prison Industrial Complex and about the different kinds of work that the group has done over the years. In 2009, the federal government announced that it was closing
1: all the prison farm programs across Canada. These were both cattle and agricultural farms that were like a work program in minimum security institutions across Canada, and two of them were in the Kingston area. And they were widely seen to be like a rehabilitation-focused program in that people who are progressive people support these programs, and a lot of prisoners really sought out these kinds of programs over the other kinds of work that's available, which is mostly like cleaning or building military vehicles or building furniture for the government or something like that. So there was a fairly strong consensus that these were a lesser evil in terms of day-to-day life in prison. And when they announced the closure of the farms, the reason they gave was that the Harper government believed that farming was no longer a viable employment skill. So this really upset the farmers in the area. They organized into various unions, and so the unions became active almost immediately and organized a campaign to try to stop the farms from being closed. And they hooked up with various progressive church groups in the area who believe in rehabilitation and prison reform. At the beginning, there was even a guards union that was involved and mobilized a huge number of people, like hundreds and hundreds of people were involved in this campaign right from the beginning. And Kingston, as was said before, is 120,000 people. So that's a very significant event in the city we had already been wanting to do something as anarchists around the prison system and the prison industrial complex, and so it just all came together in this moment, and we decided to write a pamphlet that was called Super Prisons, and it was basically an analysis of the direction that the federal prison system was going in under the Harper government and researching the different federal government documents that had come out about how they wanted to bring in a very tough-on-crime program through Parliament as well as harshening conditions in the prisons, as well as expanding the prisons and perhaps even building new multi-security level prisons on existing grounds. So those would be super prisons with, you know, 2,000 inmates in a single site. So we plugged into the campaign with our own analysis and perspective and explicitly talked about prison abolition and gave our reasons for being there and tried to organize to both support the campaign to stop the prison firms from being closed, as well as to introduce people to a prison abolitionist perspective. With some you know, mixed successes, I think that some of the narratives resonated really well in that campaign and some of those relationships outlived the campaign and some of them didn't. There just was a political difference there that couldn't be overcome. So that was the beginning of EPIC in 2010. And there was a direct action campaign that culminated in a blockade at Frontenac Institution as they tried to remove the cattle from the prison farm. And that lasted two days and hundreds of people participated. The first day was a success. And then the second day, it was crushed by the police. And there's a number of arrests. In the aftermath of that, we decided to continue the group, but to refocus things around the expansion of the prison system and how that was connected to the closure of the farms and the getting rid of programs and clearing up land basically to build new units. So from there, we were organizing a campaign of disruption and harassment of private contractors who were getting paid at times millions of dollars to build these new units and to profit off the misery of people who'd be living in them.
2: That was an epic-led campaign for the most part. There were others in town who were not members who were supportive of the campaign, but it was not coalitional in nature. The Prison Farms was certainly like a mass movement that existed in town, and the campaign against expansion was more a small group of committed people fighting an ongoing expansion project, which ultimately did happen. The units were completed in 2014. There were a number of actions in 2012. That was sort of a peak. For that campaign and then less after that as the construction went on and moved indoors and also we had some research barriers to finding out who was involved in the latest stages of construction to do with our methodology at time as well and then by 2016 we had certainly moved on to other focuses. Since then we have made a few changes one of which is we have spent a lot more time connecting with prisoners who are involved in various forms of resistance inside partly through a newsletter which we continue to put out That's written mainly by prisoners about resistance to prisons and campaigns that are going on inside the federal prisons we've also supported a few campaigns that were going on inside and we've done solidarity actions on the outside most notably around uh, strike over pay cuts we have worked with other groups we collaborated every year with different people or sometimes just ourselves on putting together an event for Prisoner's Justice Day, which is an event that happens every year inside, but also on the outside in various cities. There are events and vigils, and we've done that every year.
1: I would say, too, that the campaign against prison expansion, its last hurrah, was an attempt to shut down construction on Prisoner's Justice Day in 2012. We put a lot of time and energy into trying to organize that, and we had people come from out of town. But for a variety of reasons, including the perceived risk level of that action, we had a pretty small turnout and a huge police presence waiting for us. So we really failed at that attempt. And I think that caused a lot of us to reflect on our strengths and our weaknesses, mostly our weaknesses. And one of those things we identified out of that process was a desire to build stronger relationships with individual prisoners that we had been maybe corresponding with or had started talking with to have a better sense of what was going on inside so that we could be more responsive to basically what Rachel was saying about like if there's a strike, we know it ahead of time and we know as soon as it starts and we can do something to support that and kind of have this back and forth because we just were feeling unable to mobilize large numbers of people to do big outside actions. And that, I think, remains true. It's really hard to organize around prison because people feel very unsure about what the world would look like without prison. And maybe they know somebody who's been really hurt or someone who's done something really terrible. And it's like a really hard thing for a lot of people, myself included, to come to terms with. What would the world look like without prisons? also because, for me, the answer to that question doesn't make any sense if we left the rest of the system intact. It's important to have a variety of politics and analysis around how would this entire society and entire system be transformed in a way that is more, you know, ecological and community-supporting and autonomous.
0: What sorts of things have you been able to do on the outside in support of actions and resistance happening inside?
1: there's a wide range of things. First and foremost, understanding whether there's demands or whether it's just a pushback against CSC or something like that. Sometimes there's a specific target that you can help put pressure on, whether through protest or through creative direct action or through, you know, dropping banners in support of people on the highway so that people are aware that there's something going on. We've stood outside at the intersection outside Collins Bay Penitentiary and stopped cars and fired them. We've slowed down traffic on the bridge and the causeway for Prisoner's Justice Day. There's a strategic question. Is this about the public becoming aware of something or is it about maybe Corrections Canada specifically feeling pressure from a variety of places? But we try to mix awareness And sending our solidarity, like if we do something like drop a banner, we're going to take a picture of it and we're going to put it out for people to see and we're going to mail it to the people so that they feel some degree of support, which I think has made a pretty big difference. Or publishing their demands or their analysis of the situation in our newsletter or on our blog if it needs to be done in a more immediate fashion. And sometimes it's like aggressive, militant protest against the people who are overseeing people and and maybe they're treating them poorly or someone has been injured or killed inside and there needs to be a response like that's not okay and people are going to notice that and there's going to be consequences for doing things like that. The strategy dictates that, but the main thing is if you have communication channels open to people who are participating in those struggles, then you can negotiate that and have a sharpened analysis of what's happening and what might be a helpful boost to that campaign.
0: And how have you done that? How have you managed to establish and maintain relationships with people on the inside, given all of the constraints that they face? Staying
2: connected is definitely easier than getting connected. And in terms of getting connected, we've tried various kinds of creative methods, including one of the most successful, which has been writing letters addressed to people who have already spoken out, like in the media or online and other places, about the actions they're doing inside. So that has been one method. And then building contacts from other contacts as well. Like once you someone finding out who else is involved, that's been, I think, actually our most successful way of finding people who are doing these things. In terms of staying connected, certainly like the ways that we're used to communicating with our friends are not the ways that are going to work. But you can correspond. That's kind of neat. And you also tend to actually be there when you say you're going to be there for a phone call. You know, something that many people in cell phone culture are not as used to, but is actually possible. Like, there are ways to stay in touch with someone most of the time, especially if you're flying somewhat under the radar of CSC.
1: It is very difficult, though, to make that first contact, especially because it's probably clear that it's really important to us to be really explicit about our politics. And that means being like, we're against CSC. Like, we don't want them to exist. So they don't like us very much. So they do sometimes do things to obstruct our ability to speak to people or they will threaten prisoners with consequences. Like they'll say, we'll put a note on your file or, you know, you don't want to get mixed up with those people. It's going to be harder for you to get parole. We had one friend of ours. She was sent back to prison for showing a video at one of our events. They basically pulled their parole over it for three months because of an unauthorized association. So they have an extreme amount of arbitrary authority and control over people's lives. And that very much plays into certain limitations that we sometimes run up against. And it's not our place to push somebody to risk those things. Someone's got to choose that for themselves. So most of what we do is we just put ourselves out there as best we can, whether it's sending off tons of letters as much as we can, or maybe we have a big noisy demo outside a prison we try to, like, let people know that that was us. In various ways of, like, maybe we know somebody who volunteers inside or works as a programs officer or in some kind of role like that. And we try to say, hey, if you ever think mm-hmm. someone would like to talk to us, pass on our address. I think we've done well in terms of people are aware that we exist and they can reach out to us if they want. I think the tricky part is making it clear that we have something to actually offer that's going to be able to help people better their situation, especially because most of the work we do is very long goal. We do sometimes get involved in campaigns for immediate changes to people's conditions, but a lot of what we do is talk about why we'd be better off without prisons and why we need to get rid of prisons altogether. So that, you know, understandably can be hard to see why it would benefit somebody to reach out to us and build a relationship and perhaps face some consequences for that.
0: What do you think can be done, should be done, to broaden the reach of prison abolitionist politics in Canada, particularly among people who identify in one way or another with the left or with struggles or with social movements and so on?
2: This isn't going to sound like broadening, but I think that actually drawing really clear lines is really important and being really honest about politics is really important. And that sometimes, you know, that does create divisions within the left. And I do think certainly right now that the police and law and order are a major line that a lot of people are divided by. And you see that in the follow-up from protests across the country all the time. But I also think that in many ways that is and I hope will continue to be a constructive line, a constructive division, a constructive conflict. Of course, I do want to broaden that to some extent. Like I want more people to commit themselves to fighting for a world that is doesn't no prisons in it. But I'm not afraid of a world where there are some people who call themselves progressives or, or call themselves other left, but believe firmly in law and order and defend law and order. And to accept that if those people are really, really committed to fighting for law and order, they are not our allies. And that's perhaps OK in some contexts. And I think that actually there's a lot of buy in in the world at large, like when I talk to people in my neighborhood or on the bus or whatever, if you talk to like the police versus talking to people about various other left goals, many, many people are on side for that. Many, many people are like, yeah, you know what? Like I totally hate prison. I totally hate the cops, because that's something that really tangibly affects a lot of lives and people can really see that as a violent institution in their day to day life. It's quite clear, I think. So I think that it is quite generalizable to talk to people about you know what, like, I think prisons don't solve any problems and we should just not have them. And I think that I've had more struggles with that on the left than I have in my day-to-day life with my own family or with friends or coworkers or whatever. To me, police, law, and order in prisons are often an easier conversation to have than, say, capitalism or colonialism, various things that people who perhaps should be against them don't see their interests as aligned with the fight against those things. I think a lot of people see their interests as quite clearly aligned with a world that doesn't have police and prisons in it, especially if you're thinking about poor people, people who are affected by those things on a day-to-day basis.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Rachel and Eric of End the Prison Industrial Complex, or EPIC, from Kingston, Ontario. To learn more about their work, go to epic.noblogs.org. If you're a prisoner and you want to get in touch with them, send them a letter to Suite 409, 427 Princess Street, Kingston, Ontario, K7L 5S9. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter.